if that happened to you during the Estes method, there's a lot of other things going on that day. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show's Screen Scouts. He says that a chimera can take the form of a tin can. Okay. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. I'm Iori. And on today's show, we will discuss 2019's Hellier, a paranormal documentary series directed by Carl Pfeiffer and featuring Greg Newkirk, Dana Newkirk, and Connor Randall, at least for season one. Other people show up later. The series is available on Amazon Prime and YouTube, so you can watch one or both seasons if you so like. We will be talking about season one, although I imagine season two will at least come up in conversation. Just a little bit, yes. But before we do that, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We are still hoping to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, and topic suggestions, and more. So please reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Please. Do it or else. Or else what? I don't know. I'll go to a small Kentucky town and harass the locals. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, apparently it's very lucrative. So I think we should start by talking about where we stand on the occult and the paranormal, because I know all three of us come from pretty different cultural backgrounds. I will mm-hmm. start by saying that I actively practice Shinto. I part-time as a Mikkel. I used to read tarot on a 1-900 line. I have done house clearings, let's call them that, because exorcism sounds really dramatic. Mm-hmm. So, it really does, doesn't it? I live in an animist universe, and I am at peace with that. So for me, it's not a do I believe in ghosts thing. It's I think do I believe in ghosts is a really stupid question on par with saying, do you believe in the dentist? I don't believe in my dentist, but my dentist certainly exists independent of my belief. That's fair. Fair enough. Brandon, what about you? Um, I just think that the question, do you believe in ghosts, is a question wrongly asked. I do not think, for the most part, that I believe the interactions that people believe are proof of interactions with the supernatural are always universally experienced. But I also think that it doesn't matter. And I think that uh, a lot of the time, like having those kinds of discussions, like has the potential to run up against the comfort of interacting with people for whom that belief is very sacred to them. And in much the same way that I'm not going to get in a fight with a random Christian about the fact that I do not that I have questions about the uh, historicity of Jesus Christ. I'm not just going to walk up to a person who believes in ghosts and say, but I think ghosts aren't real. Like, it doesn't factor into my normal engagement in that way. With that being said, as a reader and a writer of science fiction and fantasy, my primary concern, both in presenting those narratives and, like, interpreting them personally, is essentially... What is your methodology? What assumptions are you making about the world and about other people and other kinds of beliefs in that world? And how are you a- a- attempting to like 
make that understandable for other people because that kind of supernatural belief in one space is not exactly the same as it is in other places and people often conflate those things or make assumptions about what those things mean and especially assumptions about whether a thing is purely good or purely evil instead of purely existing and that tends to bother me more than whether a ghost is really there which mildly factors into our discussion but not so much in season one as in more of season two well, then it comes to me, and on the subject of belief, I would say that in, in I don't believe in any of these things in the sense that I'm not convinced that they exist, but I don't hold the view that they cannot exist, I mean, with exceptions perhaps to some specific claims that maybe just are outright impossible. So I, I don't take the view that I cannot be convinced otherwise. I would just take the view that I, I really need something quite substantial to get me to the point of believing that it is there, which could be personal experience, which I have never had, despite occasionally going into abandoned houses and thinking that I had seen ghosts, even though it was just really us being dorky children. We didn't see anything, actually. We just, like, scared each other and then ran out of the house, which is a thing kids do. Mm -hmm. I th I think... Unless there's any objections, I will just quickly summarize the basic premise of Hellier. Mm -hmm. Yes, go for it. Oh, wait, hang on. I want to contextualize this for the listeners. So I originally pitched this idea to Brandon and Sean as I want to look at Hellier from the perspective of a documentary and examine the storytelling because I think how we tell a story while we are actively involving ourselves in the story changes the shape of how we tell it. And that mm -hmm. is, to me, what's most compelling about Hellier. What are the considerations that go into documenting an unfolding story that you are part of? Sorry, something apparently just went bump in my house. <laughs> oh, <laughs> goblins. <laughs> it might be goblins. It's, no, it's literally my brother it's probably dropping something. <laughs> so it was your brother then. No goblins. One well, star. Look, to be clear... I'm guessing it's my brother because that's the most likely answer to what I just heard. But it, I suppose it is possible that there are hobgoblins in Bemidji, Minnesota. I think that's unlikely. Are you on top of a cave system? I don't think so, but I also haven't investigated this. So I won't make a, a definitive statement about what is true on this particular case because I simply don't know. Maybe there are secret caves underneath my house. Mm -hmm. But also, Noted. you have a cat, and half the point of having a cat is to have something to blame all the bumps in the night on. Yeah. Well, precisely. Okay, let's get to Hellier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So, the the basic premise of Hellier is that the new Kirks, and then eventually their friend Randall, they get a mysterious email which suggests that in this small town of Hellier, Kentucky, that there are these strange, sort of cave-dwelling, goblin-like aliens that have been visiting and terrorizing this man's family by coming out of the caves at night and, you know, making sounds and, you know, banging on the windows and all that kind of thing, scaring the bejesus out of his family. Understandably, a very alarming story. And so in the process of beginning to try to unpack this story, they get some images that they, they believe may show the possibility of these beings, and then they decide to investigate a little bit closer. Through the process of this investigation, they both go 
through some of the cave system, or at least they, they talk about the cave system that's throughout Greater Kentucky. They go to Hellier and interacts with some of the locals, and they engage in some, I suppose you could call experiments, in which they attempt to engage with the spirit realm, uh, broadly defined, in order to find answers to a mystery that doesn't immediately make sense to them. And that is largely what this documentary is, is about their narration of the process uh, they went through as this story was unfolding. And so that's the basic premise of the season one of Hellier. Uh, season two gets very different. There's a lot of different stuff happening, much more of my favorite stuff, which is the Mothman stuff. But Season two escalates considerably. Tyler yes, joins the classes, joins the cast as a regular. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is in, is very interesting by comparison to season one, because I have lots of opinions about season one, uh, which involves getting quote tweeted by Greg Newkirk himself, which not not a thing I intended to happen, but uh, love you, Greg. <laughs> so <laughs> prefacing for all of the Telia fans that we are not genuinely like, please listen to us when we're trying to be like as genuinely understanding as and thoughtful as possible. We are not trying to be mean. We think the thing is cool. Please don't hate us. I don't know. I think the I the the story that is there is really cool. I don't know if I would say that I think Hellier season one is cool. I have some serious issues with the way that this story is framed that I found really bothersome. So with my documentary watching hat on, I do want to say first off that I really appreciate how the vast majority of Occult and paranormal shows really like to manufacture jump scares, and Hellier mm -hmm. yeah. did not go in for that, which, when you are dealing with this kind of subject matter, there is such a temptation to hype up the drama levels, and mm -hmm. the way Hellier deliberately refused to engage in that was just a goddamn balm to my soul. I will say, like, personally, also from, like, a film studies dropout perspective... I do find it, again, very, like, valuable that this is a documentary that is not attempting to create drama for the purposes of keeping me attached. But also, I dig that because the narrative isn't necessarily about whether a mystery is present and will be unearthed, but about the experience of a handful of people going, I think there's a mystery here and I want to explore it further. And I think that that's really neat. But I think that... As a result, it does still ha enter into points where it butts up against the idea of something is happening here and we do need to reveal it. And I feel often that they do not physically commit to the act of that revelation, at least in season one, as compared to season two. Yeah, I, I guess I would say two things here. I, I agree with you, Brandon, that season one for me has two problems. One is a, my slight disagreement, which is that while I agree that it doesn't do the stuff that you sometimes see in like, much more manufactured paranormal shows where like they really want to heighten the drama by like, did you hear the sound? And like they, they really amp it up a lot. I still think that there is a lot of dramatic framing going on here that I found grating at times because things were being made to seem much more significant than to me felt justified by what is has been presented in the investigation which leads me to brandon's other issue which is i don't know if you meant to use the word physically because you meant literally physically but i really wish that they had committed to an actual physical investigation of the actual claim that was being made 
which they do not do in any way that I would consider substantial in season one, which to me became an endless frustration going through each episode because every time someone has made what is broadly a naturalistic claim, there are some sort of physical entity that is living in a physical space that is interacting in a physical way with physical beings. They don't ever stop to say, well, let's go investigate the place where we would find these physical entities doing physical stuff. They immediately jump from that to let's do spiritual investigation. But to me, it felt like they often did that because they felt that they had, quote unquote, run into a dead end, which is like a framing that they use a number of times. But to me, you could only justify treating that as a dead end response if you'd actually done some of the initial legwork to determine that the physical phenomenon could not be reasonably justified, that there may have been some other phenomenon going on. In the team's defense, though, I think their ability to physically investigate the phenomena was limited by the fact that they didn't get there fast enough. They don't have the house where this happened. I understand the reasons that they could not drop everything to go to this house. There have been plenty of things where I have just had to skip out on checking out something I would have wanted to entirely because it was not feasible for me to make that long of a drive or something. But essentially, because they never had the address or coordinates of the actual property supposedly belonging to David Christie, because they are investigating this several years after they received those original emails, there is limited physical evidence that they could gather about that initial case. And I think that contributes to why they had to scale up and kind of pull back and widen the scope of the investigation to be the whole town and incorporate other phenomena. I agree to a, a point. I, I I recognize that limitation. What for me became an issue from that is because because it is a thing that they talk about, right? That they that they got in this weird email and they just kind of like sat on it for a while and they did like some book research, right? They kind of did all this stuff and then eventually they get like more emails and they got this weird thing from Terry Rist who may or may not be Greenfield who's talked about in season two, blah, blah, blah. But there are a couple moments where they talk about this wider presentation of this physical phenomenon that they're originally brought in, right? Because there's this massive cave system that exists in the greater Kentucky area, and there have been sightings all over that cave system. And they even talk to some people who tell them of very recent examples, such as the one time there's a fellow who may or may not be trustworthy telling them there was a cave with baby noises coming out of it, among other sounds. And to me, it would seem the logical course to say, well, let's actually do some investigations of these caves and these cave systems and where these sightings are are occurring and try to map them out and show like this is not one town. It's not just one sighting in one town. It's all over this network. And that this now gives us something that is a bedrock for us to investigate. I would have loved to see that. Yes. As the Terry Wrist email says, Hellier was just a symptom. Yeah. It's, I mean, Terry Rist, whoever the Terry Rist actually is, is a fascinating fellow who clearly knows how to push some buttons. <laughs> I just, yeah, to me, though, that was like the central problem for me throughout that I, I got really frustrated trying to, like, I honestly was like, go into a cave, please. <laughs> like, what's in these, What what's the deal with these weird caves? Enter a singular cave. <laughs> because, like, a lot of it for me is also... If you are attempting to 
experience a falsifiable phenomenon, then there is value in being present and being able to say at least something was inconclusive. And I feel like they lost a lot, they didn't have a lot of opportunities to lean into um, not just the capacity to discover whether there were things, physical objects that they could possibly discover that would also be interesting, whether they were immediately conclusive or not. But it's also really dramatically valuable to go into a place and then emerge and say, this is inconclusive, because there are all sorts of assumptions we make about the the inconclusivity of that kind of uh, information that would also have been drama, especially considering that a large part of how they frame the end of season one and the beginning of season two, which I'm like now leaning into, is the idea that Terry Rist is just a conspiracy for something that is either far larger or far sillier than they have imagined, and they just want to find out which one it is. Mm-hmm. I think having the opportunity to at least be able to engage with physical evidence and at least say, we don't know what it says or there is nothing here, is still dramatic, and I wanted them to do more of those things precisely because, like, that's the kind of drama that I'm here for. You're here to experience a phenomenon. I want to see you experience it with your whole body. Please, touch your thing. We do get some of that with the Estes Method sessions. Right, that is true. Sure. <laughs> I, I found those very, also very difficult to take, but I understand why they, re- they used them. Because for Connor Randall in particular, that is a method that he loves to pioneer uh, because it's something that's deeply important to him. I get why they were doing it. I personally did not find what came out of those to be particularly dramatically valuable. And I think largely because they required so much interpretation that you could almost mold anything into them. I understand why people find that to be valuable to them, because if from your own subjective experience, you are you're having this this relationship to a spiritual moment or, or something you perceive to be a spiritual moment that could enlighten things that you don't even realize need to be enlightened at that moment. But again, going back to that issue of the physical phenomenon that we're trying to assess, I didn't feel like we were getting to answers that helped us to understand what that was. It felt to me much more as a personal result for the people involved rather than something necessary to the investigation. But again, I am not from this perspective. The entire investigation is personal. Yeah. I mean, this is a show where we are very much watching these people attempt to navigate their personal chapel perilous. Yeah. So I guess, like, the again, the thing that I think is particularly valuable about the show is that, taken on face value, it is the experience of watching these people go, uh, this thing is neat and I want to find out more about it and why I think that it is neat. And I think as a result, even though from a documentary standpoint, it is attempting to present the idea that there is a thing that can be observed and we are presenting this information so you can also observe it and come to your own conclusions. The things that I value ultimately are these characters going, I want to know what I can do or how this relates to what I can do in order to learn more about this thing. And as a result, what the thing that fascinates me about those Estes sessions is there is a lot that a person can do to themselves that they do not that they might not be aware of in the moment is a kind of cold reading. And this is not mm-hmm. me saying that this is a room of gullible people fooling themselves into thinking that something is happening, but it is me asking the question of how much of the information that they are 
getting this information that they're feeding into the experience. And that's simultaneously a thing that muddies our observation of whether a thing is true and falsifiable, but also makes it incredibly more personal because we are just witnessing a room full of people experiencing a phenomenon spiritually and being heavily emotionally invested in that spiritual experience, which is kind of endearing and charismatic on its own and becomes a little bit more charismatic in the season two. It's also kind of the point because if blah blah tree forest who's around to hear it, but (laughs) if no one witnesses the phenomena, it can't mean anything. Having someone there to interpret it is really the point. And I want to take a moment to just stop and praise the editing work done on this show, because it would have been so easy to cut out every scene where people are hyping each other up or feeding into each other's theories to make yourselves look more objective, more rational, more skeptical. And I think that the fact that they didn't give themselves, like, the straight National Geographic pure skeptic edit when they released this speaks to a level of honesty in the storytelling that I really aspire to. Yeah, I agree. I think they are being extremely honest in what they've portrayed. I have seen some reviews of Hellier that that try to like posit that, oh, they're just charlatans and they're they're telling telling a bunch of fibs and they're just like, it's like, there was a moment where I actually was researching this, trying to figure out like, is this a real documentary or is it like a mockumentary that's pretending to be real? People ask that question on the internet a lot. Yeah, well, I, I, I was really honestly curious because I didn't know... I don't know these people, right? So I don't know anything about the new Kirks. I don't know Connor Randall. These folks don't, they don't mean anything to me in that, in the context of watching a thing in which they're in, because I don't know who they are. So I really needed to understand what is this thing that I'm watching? And I've seen all these, these reviews of people positing that they're not sincere. It's all like, you know, fakery and all of this stuff. And I mean, I don't know these people, so maybe they're insincere, but I don't buy that from what's framed here. To me, their personal connections to their own, ideas about the paranormal are genuine the way in which we we the estes method in particular seems to have very clear on-screen emotional significance uh, especially to connor who is becomes the vehicle that is being used in order to have the these moments even when they're attempting to talk about the events that they experience whatever you may personally think about those events their reactions are fairly genuine. And part of that is because all the people involved in this production, they're like interviewing their friends. Like they know each other, they hang out together. And so when they're having these interactions, there are moments when it's like, you know, it's Greg Newkirk sitting down and talking to the camera, but it's like Connor behind the camera. And all of a sudden Connor will butt in and they will suddenly have a conversation that isn't pure uh, documentary structure. It's one that's becomes much more of a personal interaction on a subject where they're sharing their personal, how they felt about what was happening to them or what they, what they saw was coming or the surprises that showed up to me that I think is I, to use the word that Brandon used uh, it quite endearing and is very charismatic. It's kind of hard to watch this and not think these people feel like they genuinely care about this subject. If you come to that conclusion, I think that says a lot about your own personal biases. But to me, it just seemed quite genuine in what I was getting from their reactions, even if I wasn't necessarily, quote unquote, buying what I was seeing. It felt genuine nonetheless, which I can't say it's all paranormal shows because sometimes (laughs) I've seen those shows and I'm like, oh, you're acting. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is not legit. Like, I think the moment when it kind of clicked for me that these are genuinely earnest people is that in another show, if some, like, seemingly bombastic paranormal phenomenon took place that was manufactured or not, and they got the opportunity to witness it, in another show you'd see people try to frame it as skeptically as possible so we get to develop a relationship with them as capable of being skeptical and capable of being thorough. But in Hellia, everybody has no issue being earnest to the point where there are moments when I've watched scenes in season one and went, are you just very gullible? And in another show, people would have edited that out because they don't want to be made to seem like fools. And as a result, I kind of went the other way and thought, even if you are, like, manufacturing this experience, like, for yourself, there is a kind of honesty in the fact that you can be in a room full of people who are sharing an experience and want to share that experience with other people who might judge you very harshly for being potentially silly. And you've earned the trust of the people who have watched the show as a result. I think that's really cool. And to give them credit, they're doing something very difficult because when you are engaging with this kind of phenomena, it really becomes about context. The right thing happening at the right time feels deeply meaningful. And even something very simple or plain taken out of its correct context can become scary. And that's something that's always very difficult to explain to other people. You know, I think this actually just comes back to a basic problem of being a person and trying to relate to other mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Well, one thing that that I, I think we should talk about just briefly, because if folks have not seen Hellier, they may not understand what the Estes method is. <laughs> and so, because it's... Yes. It is related to things you've probably seen, but is different. And I thought, Yori, you might want to tell us, what is the Estes method? Like, we all know, but go on. What is it? Okay. So... Please do not confuse this with the Estes operation, which is a transposition yeah, very of an different. ovary. Not remotely the same cat. If that no happened to you during the Estes method, there's a lot of other things going on that day. <laughs> so noise canceling headphones on so that you are not receiving input from what is around you. Blindfolded, hooked up to a radio scanner that is changing channels at high speed. You are not supposed to be receiving input from what is physically around you. Your only input is supposed to be the radio. Now, of course, we can't shut down touch and smell totally, which is too bad. But this produces effects similar to what you get. Have you ever done a sensory deprivation tank, either of you? I have, yeah. N not, not an original thing, but I've attempted in my youth to manufacture the experience with not great success. Sean, tell me what that felt like for you. I gotta be honest, I didn't get a lot out of it. I, I mostly lost sense of time. Because I think the session was supposed to be like 15 or 20 minutes. And I honestly thought, thought I was in there for like two hours. And I got actually bored because I, I had a hard time just like not moving and just sitting there. So I like wrote a, a rap about my friend while I was in there because he made me do it with him. But that sense of time loss was like really jarring, which I, I guess is a pretty common feature of sensory deprivation. You did not get the colors or the sounds? Maybe that's a length of session thing, but... I mean, I could hear my own body's sounds, which is maybe not... Oh yeah, not that's so you're... gross. I yeah. hate that part. But essentially, like when I've done sensory deprivation tanks in the past... This may be my ADHD talking, but 
my brain becomes so desperate for input that it starts manufacturing input. Yeah, I didn't have that experience, but there's also a possibility of like, I've only done one. And so that probably is affected by a singular experience of like not knowing what you're supposed to get out of it and maybe being skeptical that it's going to do anything for you. What you come into a situation, the biases you bring in are going to affect the experience you have of that thing. So perhaps I could have something like that by re-experiencing it with a different mindset of like, I've done this. It's not as weird as I thought it was the first time. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. So essentially, the Estes method works a little bit like an overless box does, but it uses the radio instead of EMF values. So because it's rapidly scanning the radio, you're not even getting whole words most of the time. You are getting half words and clips and phrases. And if you are having a good day, these things can add up to a meaning. It's like an alternative method of of how you might engage with a spiritual entity of some kind in which you could have, I don't know if conversation is the right word, but some sort of communication with, with some sort of spiritual presence. Full disclosure, I have tried it with friends and you can perfectly easily get something that sounds and feels like a conversation out of it. Well, that's because creepy. Because the people asking the questions are outside that bubble of sensory deprivation and the person in that bubble is just reading out whatever they are hearing whatever they piece together out of that radio noise and yeah you do get stuff that sounds like you are responding to each other and depending on the context of your situation that can in fact be very valuable i think one thing i would love to see with this method is having it's set up in a way in which the person who is going into the in with, you know, putting the blinders, etc. on doesn't actually know what the context is. So when they're saying the mm-hmm. things that they hear, there's no possibility that they can interpret for people what they're hearing. They're just they're just saying words. And it's the people outside who are like, we know the context of what's happening here. And they would be the ones deriving the meaning from what's coming out. That, to me, I think would be really interesting to see. They don't do that here, but because there's an intentionality to why they're using this method, right? They're using it for a purpose to which Connor Randall is is a a willing participant. But in season two, they do use like an even more wild version of the Ested method where they add the, the god helmet thing in which is like yes, electric magnets yeah the magnets around the head that yeah i want to say it's on stack overflow i know there are instructions on how to build this that are online i have them bookmarked somewhere brandon i see that face you're making yeah you we can build one brandon how to build one the internet is wild y'all what are you going to do after you invent that just fucking hoard the plans in your basement until you die you want other people to use it so that you can get data. <laughs> I was just going to say idly, is it weird of me that uh, most of these like techniques and technologies interest me first and foremost as a poet, as surreal reading exercises that would create really wild art? Let's do this. Let's have you channel some poetry out of the white noise. That would be amazing. I think that would be rad. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think so. We can see what we get out of it, you know, and who knows, mm-hmm. maybe we'll, maybe you'll have a, an experience of some kind that will lead you to recognizing spiritual, maybe ghosts or other kinds of entities. Who knows? Or hobgoblins. Very possible. Maybe Mothman will just tell me where he lives. 
Look, can I just say, I, I know Mothman is mentioned in season one, but he becomes much more important to the story in season two. I love the Mothman stuff. I adore it in a way that I, I wish I could express properly because I find it utterly fascinating. And so when they go into the detail in season two and they kind of give a little bit here, I really wanted more. I was so into that moment. I am sitting here going like, yes, feed me more Mothman. Let's go. Let's go. And then the Mothman story got wild. It just becomes this whole other thing. And I'm like, what is what? Because my first interaction with Mothman stories was the movie The Mothman Prophecies, which is like a very the Mothman in that is much more. I don't know. Malevolent's not the right word, but he's like, he's not your friend, but he's not your enemy either. He's just kind of like when he's around, you're, you're going to have a bad day. It's not going to be a great day for you in the movie. <laughs> we really need to stop trying to apply human ideas of morality to other entities that exist with their own value systems. I will say that I also really, truly love the Mothman prophecies but I just want to say I really hate how John Keel talks about women. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Why do you feel the pressing need to inform me that every woman you encounter is attractive? Like, is this a warning that aliens only zap hotties and I got to be worried or? It's one of those weird things where like the further back you go and you get like men in particular writing about things that aren't them, they, they like objectify everything. Here's the thing that I think is important about how John Keel is telling this story and linking this back to Hellier. John Keel is conscious of his place within the narrative and is actively framing himself as a noir protagonist as he tells this story. So this comes back to that question of how do I tell a story that I am part of, right? How has media taught me to enact the archetype of the character I think I play in this story? So definitely every time I read the Mothman prophecies, I wind up narrating it to myself in this super overwrought Humphrey Bogart voice like, Dame had legs that went all the way to the floor. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. And that that's all over that like period, like this 60s, 70s, even the 50s, like the UFO stuff where people insert themselves very hard into stories where they, they want to be like the heroes, like they part of the charm, the quote unquote charm of those older, older works is that the person who's writing about it is like part of the investigation. He is central to the story instead of as more non autobiographical accounts of things that occurred or even not ones in which one is not artificially inserting themselves into things they didn't actually experience. But it also brings up my favorite question ever, which is. Are you actually the protagonist? Or are you an NPC who thinks you're the protagonist? Are you perhaps just the bard? It's very mm -hmm. possible that a lot of people need to like accept their role, that they are just the bard. They're, ju they're just the person telling someone else's story. And this kind of, I think, gets to part of why maybe some people have much more problems with this in some ways, which is that this is because it's such a personalized storytelling structure. There's a there's, I think, a tendency to interpret that in a way that a lot of documentary filming is is not intended to be interpreted in which which there is a so like I think I watch a lot of serial killer documentaries because I'm weird. I just can't I just love the, the mythos of it. And I and there's a lot of like very interesting narrative storytelling that goes in attempting to tell these these years-long, sometimes decades-long investigations that eventually result in capture, blah, 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 right? 
the really good ones, when they bring personalized story in, it's because those people's experiences of what was going on during the investigation, whether they were relatives of victims or victims themselves or the officers or whoever, they actually personalize those stories because how they felt matters to the story. Like, we're stressed out or we're overwhelmed or here's how I felt when we caught the guy. The ones that do it badly let people who didn't have personal emotional investment in the outcome of that story become part of those stories in ways that really cheapen the narratives of other people. And the example that I come up with a lot is actually the Night Stalker documentary, um, who was a serial killer in uh, the Los Angeles area. And uh, you can look it up on your own. But there's a it's a very well shot documentary that on Netflix. But the one thing I find infuriating is every time they bring in these journalists who really weren't involved in the case in any substantial way, who immediately frame the story about their, themselves as if they are central to the story and the investigation, but also potential victims of the story of what's going on, which I find so infuriating precisely because it's these people who see what happened in which people were brutally murdered and had horrible things done to them. They see it as a story that is about popularity, that is about, like, this is sensational. This is exciting. All the police officers, when you, the, you talk to the detectives in that, it's the opposite, right? When they, when they share emotions that are laughter or happiness, it's because they're looking at ironies of things that happen. But mostly they're talking about the brutality of what was happening and the stress of what was happening because they were central to it. But they insert these other people who want to make it about, like, how exciting this is. Even though we're talking about people whose lives were completely destroyed, horrifically in some cases. And I think in this story, in Hellier, to bring it back, I mean, obviously we're not dealing with murders, and so that's not like a part of this conversation. Well, I guess who knows what the Hobbins are actually up to. I guess there is a moment in season two where they talk about them pulling children into cave systems, and that's possibly there. But their personal experience is so central to this. Whatever you may think of the methodology or whatever, it is something that is so important to the story that's being told. But because it's presented as honest, it doesn't get us to the point at which if they are sensationalizing, it's only because for them, they see deeper meaning in what they're experiencing. Whether you agree with it is a different question, but it's not, we are inserting ourselves in a way to make this thing bigger than it is. Mm. No, we are part of this thing. This is us. They are the detectives from the Night Stalker documentary, whereas a, a worse framing of this would be the really sycophantic journalists trying to insert themselves into a story that's not about them. They are not here because they want to crack the story of what's happening in Hellier. Yeah. They're here because, ooh, this is neat, and I brought my friends to experience this thing and go on a trip. Yeah. We've spoken a lot about that kind of earnestness, but I think the reason why I think that that's also valuable in a documentary sense, as you say, is that... It's very easy to assume that the work of a thing is to give us a conclusive answer about a thing. I think thematically, Hellier is much more concerned with the idea that sharing an experience is valuable, and we're here to te- we're here to tell the story of how valuable sharing an experience can be. And I think not only in the spiritual sense, but in a general sense, that as a documentary theme is actually very endearing in and of itself 
because it means that the goal isn't about giving people an answer. It's about telling people how useful and interesting and fascinating and cool it is to be inspired enough to have that kind of journey. I think Brandon has hit on the thing that I really love best about Hellier, and it is the idea of sharing this experience as an end in itself, not necessarily as a stepping stone to anything else. Because especially when you are engaging with the supernatural, I mean, closure is an illusion in all things, but particularly when you're engaging with the supernatural. I know it's human to crave closure, but nine times out of ten, you're not going to get it out of anything. Not that breakup, not that job you were fired from, not your encounter with a goblin. And I love that we can be honest about that because the human tendency to narrativize everything around us makes us chase after closure in some really unhealthy ways. I think it's very freeing to just accept, I had this experience, maybe I'll never know what is behind it, I am open to future clues because it was cool as hell, but I have made my peace with not ever having a conclusive answer. The chase in itself has value. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Blah, blah, journey was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) (laughs) But you went, you came into this journey with your friends. I think it's an interesting thing you bring up, Yori, the issue of closure. Because when I was doing my live tweet thread about this that got quote tweeted by Greg Newkirk, one of the things that came up is some criticisms about like, oh, well, you're just going to be mad if you don't find goblins at the end, which I'm just going to tell you right now, season one, you don't get any goblins. I've not seen the end of season two, so maybe there are goblins at the end of that, but the internet tells me that's not true. I actually was fine with that because one of the things that if you watch or read a lot of books about any kind of like the things that fit broadly into the paranormal umbrella, right? A lot of times the answers we get from those, even the ones that are the most compellingly naturalistic scientific answers, often are not answers that just fit into a tidy little box. And I actually am fine with that. I didn't need this story to give me goblins in caves. I didn't need to know that those absolutely existed in order for me to feel completed by the end of, or at least to feel some form of ending. I don't know if I would say closure. That's really feels different. I think that part of the problem that Hellier's run into is that there's just so many people getting mad that there's not goblins at the end of it. And a lot of people have got understandably tired of hearing about problems with Hellier that people may have. But I think that it's worth saying that part of Hellier is really about an experience as a viewer of someone else's efforts to document an experience they had, which does not necessarily have to conclude with an absolute answer to what happened. Now, I personally would have preferred more stuff (laughs) than some of the things we got in it. That would have made me feel like I had gotten more as a viewer out of this experience of watching it. But the thing I didn't need was for them to absolutely confirm or deny whether or not goblins actually exist. To me, an exploration of an unusual phenomenon that gets into the depths of that phenomenon, that is compelling in and of itself because the Earth is fucking weird. There is weird stuff that happens. People have odd experiences. And I actually want to understand those because that's part of the human experience. Whether it turns out it is actually goblins in a cave or spirits or whatever, understanding that experience is worthwhile. I just wanted more. (laughs) That's just really what it comes down to. I wanted it to do more of the investigation, I think, is ultimately what comes down to for me. Yeah. 
Do we want to close out with our theories? Oh, Lord. Oh, boy. Hmm. That's a toughie. I'm going to say that I think Alan Greenfield is actually playing the roles of both himself, David Christie, and Terry Rist. I think all the emails are Greenfield. And part of this is because in the original David Christie emails shown during the first few episodes, David Christie identifies his goblins as extraterrestrials, but aside from their physical resemblance to the stereotypical gray alien, there doesn't really seem to be any evidence that points to them being extraterrestrials. What planted that idea instead of, you know, any of the other cryptids we could have chosen from here? I think that this is essentially Greenfield giving some other investigators the runaround to bring himself back into the public eye. Yeah, And I he has it. gotten a lot more speaking engagements after Hellier came out. I would say that my theory of this is, I wasn't going to say something nearly as specific as that, uh, because I have not seen the end of season two, so I've not actually had the experience of Greenfield. But to me, it seemed like the most likely outcome of this is that this is some form of hoax. And I don't know what it's like to be <laughs> a paranormal investigator who gets roped into a hoax. But I know I would probably be pretty pissed off about that. It's, and if what you're saying, Yori, is what ends up being true, that's even just more gross. Because as we've said, these people seem fairly genuine about their interest in these things. And to give people the runaround is honestly insulting to other people who, if if Greenfield is is sincere... Presumably he believes in some of these things. He thinks aliens are real. Or has he always been? Certainly this would destroy his credibility if he was actively engaging in hoaxes. I don't know. Like, yes, to me, I just think that there's something going on here that is running some people down the wrong path. Or I suppose you could reinterpret that as running people down a path that was done for ways that were deceptive, but may have led them down something unintentional, which I suppose is possible, too. I just think those original emails set up some hypotheses regarding whether or not these are aliens that immediately biased the investigation. Yeah. If I had seen the goblins, I don't think I would have gone to extraterrestrial as my first hypothesis, let's say. I mean, cultural context is a whole thing, though. Yeah. So the images we are shown of the, the goblins are... They're really impossible to truly discern what exactly they look like. They're very grainy, washed out images in the dark. I think if these were real sightings, the cultural context in which someone exists and what they ultimately look like would have an impact on whether or not you would see them as extra extraterrestrial or as potentially mm -hmm. extraterrestrial. I don't know what these actually look like. Like I know that the press photo of like the, the cover for the DVD like gives kind of a gray alien kind of looking mm -hmm. thing it looks like the aliens from fire in the sky if you've ever seen that movie i have not some people on the internet have seen it they kind of look like that but you're right that like your cultural context is going to bias you to a certain interpretation of what you've seen yeah i would have thought it was like a zashkiwaji or something because that's the cultural context i am working from it would have just been Okay, there's a different, few different types of small child yokai, which I could classify this as. Well, then, what about the, what other possible? Oh my goodness! Like I'm having a moment where I'm just like, what if it's also something we don't have an answer for, and it's some sort of secretive subterranean beings? 
I fully believe that there is a shitload of cryptids out there that we have not discovered yet, so... It's very possible. Or we have discovered them, but we have literally no reference for their shape or abilities, and therefore have just never described them because we don't know how to start. Some real color out of space shit. Brandon, do you have a theory? I guess we should get to that, given that I think Yori and I are on on similar pages. There is a theory that immediately comes to mind, but that's, that's like me thinking with my narrative brain and not my this is the information that has been presented to me brain. Because I haven't finished season two and a lot of those things are just like, everybody is like moving on their own information as well. So I'm not trying to like, trying to form definitive assumptions about the work as a whole anyway. But I'm kind of in between both of you in that this is a hoax. And somebody deliberately attached to giving Alan Greenfield more personal promotion is responsible. But I didn't actually settle on the fact that it was Greenfield. I just thought someone in Canada was like, this would be funny. And I know that these people would do the thing. So I'll send them an email. So it will seem like I am important and have information that they must seek from me. And then never thought about it again. Is really what I thought. And that at, at the end of season three or season four, they will get back to that point and go, oh, it really was a journey that was only important for the friends that we made along the way. Cool, I'm going home. Because I think that that would also just be really funny and really sweet. And I'm really committed to that idea in my brain. But that's, again, because I haven't finished season two. And that's also because you love friendship more than any other narrative theme. Right? The reason why I dig Helia is because I do not care if these things are real. The entire thing could be just them having a personal, deep, spiritual experience among themselves, and that would actually be cooler to me than the idea that there are aliens. It's always hard for me to watch paranormal shows because of how much Monday morning quarterbacking I wind up doing about everyone's methods. I feel like a jerk for that, but... I just want to say again how much I appreciate how they have edited the show and shot it with such honesty. Because again, it would have been so much easier to try and portray yourself as more skeptical to try and build up your credibility for the audience. They could have spun this narrative in their own favor a zillion times, and they didn't. And I appreciate the authenticity of it. I also just want to shout out that, like, Rashad Sizemore's camera work is very good. I mean, I see everyone praising Connor and and, uh, Carl for that, but Rashad also deserves credit. Somehow, it seems like Rashad has been left out of a lot of the conversation around the technical aspects of Hellier. I will say that I agree with you that the visual design of the season one's got some sound problems, but whatever, like, but the visual, like the shot compositions, etc. Like, this is very well shot. Oh, God, you just reminded me idly of a thing about season one that actually annoyed me that I had no intention of mentioning because it's very minor, but it actually bugged me a lot, which is that there are moments in the finale where they're describing like auditory hallucinations that they were having that are related to UFO phenomena that they claim to have gotten on the air. And like you can see them provide subtitles for those things. I wasn't hearing them. And I don't know if that was me just being very like cruel or obtuse to the work. I was really trying. But like I really felt like if you wanted me to notice a thing, you should have 
audibly focused on the thing for me to notice it, and I didn't notice it, and it made me feel very weird. Part of that might be the sound design. There are moments in in the season when they amplify sounds or sounds they say that they've heard. But even those amplifications for me, some of them I could hear something, but some of them I just couldn't hear anything. It's possible that there is something caught, but they didn't amplify the sound enough so that you could actually hear it. Well, the other thing, though, is, and Sean, you will understand this because you edit this podcast they're not always in situations where they have the capability in the field to do multi-track recording that would allow for them to blow up one of the sounds that way. You know how hard it is to isolate one sound when all your air sounds are on the same track. So if they didn't have multi-tracks, it's possible they may not have been able to capture them. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that they didn't try to manufacture it too. Yeah, and who wants to go caving with that much equipment, right? Well, in a cave, it's already a nightmare because everything is amplified in a cave. Like, this is Mm -hmm. in season two, there's a moment when they go in these the domes and you can hear just on the mics that they've got. And they they must be on better equipment, even that it's so echoey. Everything is amplified, that everything's every motion, like a a little key moves, and it's just. We have to give them credit for the fact that they were working in a place that is just audio poison. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it. We got to close out. Is that is that what we're doing now? We're closing? Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. As per usual, if you want to let us know what you think, if you have thoughts about Hellier or paranormal investigations or other kinds of things that have come up, please let us or know. Or photos of goblins. I want your photos of goblins. Yes. I want your photos of it. footprints with dermal ridges. At me on Twitter. I love this stuff. Bring me photos of hobgoblins. <laughs> I would love to see it. Go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions and let us know. You can also follow us uh, at Skiffy and Fanty on Twitter and Instagram and get the newsletter at skiffingfanny.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do, please support us by going to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. And if you like, you can give us a five-star review on iTunes, although apparently now we know for a fact it doesn't do anything other than make us feel good inside. So just do it for that reason, which seems like a good reason. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, uh, SeanDuke.net, Alphabet Streams on Twitch, and Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. You can find me at the Rising Tides on Twitter, and on Speculate, where I currently GM The Case of the Cinded Seal, a blazingly dark actual play. And you can find me at Yori Kusano on Twitter. That is I-O-R-I. There are no L's in my name. Kusanoyori.com. And I also play in the case of the Cindered Seal at SpeculateSF.com. You can also sometimes find me out in the woods or the caves or various houses with recording equipment and tarot cards and a heck of a lot of salt. Awesome. Well, on that note, I just wanted to announce that the Skiffing Fandy show will be having its annual retreat in a cave, in fact, Mm. in which we will be bringing Brandon and also some of the equipment necessary for the Estes Method, and we will be performing uh, poetry in a cave. Mm, Yes. At night, in the middle of the woods. At night, you say? Hmm. In the middle of the woods. I might be busy every night until 2029. Maybe in the day, afternoon? With your broadcasting schedule and your streaming and your podcasts, yeah, you are busy every night until 2029. This is actually true. Oh, my God. The great thing for you is the retreat is in 2029. So thank you for letting me know your schedule's clear. Duly (laughs) noted, yes. (laughs) Awkward ending and scene.
If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.